Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Pablo Bermejo. Based in Asturias, Spain, Pablo is a principal software architect and distinguished technologist at independent IT services provider DXC Technology. A popular conference speaker, he is also a writer who has published numerous articles and white papers on a wide variety of topics in a number of fields. You can follow him on Twitter at Pibelsang and check out his website at dev.to slash Pibelsang, and that's P-E-I-B-O-L-S-A-N-G. Pablo is the author of the LeanPub book, Building Software Platforms, a Guide to SaaS Transition with AWS. In the book, Pablo provides a guide to a new architectural style that can be used to help companies build internal platforms that empower their developers to build services and provide solutions to problems in alignment with the organization's own needs and tempo. In this interview, we're going to talk about Pablo's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published book author. So thank you very much, Pablo, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Uh, thanks for having me, Len. I'm excited to be here with you today. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in things like computers and technology. Right. Okay. Um, I, I consider myself a privileged person because I was born, raised, and I went to college and I work everything within 20 square kilometers, um, you know, Asturias. So I was born in Asturias, I grew up in Asturias, went to college in Asturias, and I worked in Asturias. Um, and everything happened, you know, for those who know that part of the region in Spain is small, is very rural, and, you know, it's like, well, um, I had a great opportunities to, to go here. And yeah, um, so I first became interested in computing when, when I was a teenager, um, so that is the early 90s. Um, I'm 40 years old now, so that is in the four, um, early 90s where a friend of us, a friend of the family, um, back then, um, you know, it was very rare, especially in this region, to have a computer. And I remember it was a, 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 a fellow teacher of my, my parents. My parents are teachers and one of the fellow teachers had, um, uh, he he had a, a, a spare computer. I mean, it, it was rare to have one, but this person had a spare computer and that spare computer he gave it to us. And that's how I started to get familiar with uh, computing. And that's where I started to learn some uh, basic programming back then uh, on my own with a hard book copy of basic. Um, and that's where I started to discover the <laughs> infinite possibilities of programming a computer. And, and of course, I, uh, I also, as I said, I'm very privileged because since I was very young, I knew what I wanted to do for a living and anything related to computers. And it just happened that, it, again, in Asturias, there is a, you can go to the college and study, study uh, computer sciences. And I became a computer, well, a software engineer. Um, so that's a little bit of my background. Uh, and you mentioned the the college there. It was the uh, University of um, Oviedo. Is that correct? That's that is correct. Yes. Yeah, it's for, a very, yeah. for people who might not know, you said you sort of modestly said college, but this is a sort of university going back to I think the 16th or 17th century. Oh yeah, actually yeah, and and this is one of the things that happened over here is that you can even visit the buildings back then. I mean the historic. Uh, there's a, a historic uh, building of the 15th century. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's one of the oldest um, universities around in Spain, and 
for sure. Yep. That's it. And so you mentioned, so you, so you're fortunate enough to have this computer and you had a, you had an actual like hard copy book that you, that you learned basic from. <laughs> yes. um, uh, I'm, I'm curious that this, this, this podcast was over the years become a little bit of a sort of time capsule of time capsules of people from different eras and places around the world, learning, learning, sort of getting, getting to know programming and things like that, because so many of our lean pub authors are, are, are into that. Right. And, um, and so were you, uh, were you, I'm just curious a little bit about to dig into that a little bit deeper. Were you a, were you a tinkerer uh, even before you got, you got the computer? A what? Sorry, I didn't get a, it. A tinkerer, someone who takes things apart and puts them back together and, and things like that? No, not much. No, no, okay. no. I, okay. I wasn't that kind of person. No, no. Okay. I was very, all my life, being very focused on getting my school subjects uh, passed and ah. that, that's all. Yeah. And some okay. sports, uh, you know, I'm I'm a sportsman and I always, in my free time, um, even since I was a kid, I was I always try to, to, uh, to do a sports. Okay. Okay. And did you did you begin by um, making games? Were those your first programs, or was it was well? It else? Well, I remember I, I tried. Even you know back then, I don't even remember. It was G Basic or Q Basic, the, the language where you could do some drawings. I I don't even remember now. Um, but yeah, of course, I was trying to do shapes. I remember perfectly trying to do shapes and human shapes and buildings with uh, programming back then. And I got very frustrated because even with the manuals, I couldn't do it. So that I think that makes me a bad programmer. But, you know, later I tried to fix that by going to college and then I became officially a bad programmer, but, you know, but, um, um, but yeah, uh, I've, I've got a very first experience uh, um, in my early years, teenager years, but then I, I, uh, I very, very quickly um, recognized that that was my future. It's really interesting um, when I, I love thinking about this sort of like history of computing and things like that and people's first encounters with them. And I remember uh, one of the things that like might be sort of it's difficult to convey to people is how exciting it was to be able to sort of have an impact on what you were seeing on the screen yourself. Um, even the most rudimentary thing, like I remember someone I knew had got a computer. This was, you know, in the in the 80s, early 80s, and he he typed out like sort of pixel by pixel. Uh, an ice hockey team's logo and then printed it out and said look what I made and it was just like these crude blocks blocks kind exactly. of made an approximation but the idea that you yourself could t type something into a computer then make it on the screen happen on the screen was just um magical it's magical it's one of the uh, I'll be honest with you it's one of the best feelings you I mean personally I could have is you know it, you know, there is a lot of self-realization when you try to solve a problem and you try to attack the problem and then codify it and design a solution, um, build it as you want to build it, and then it, it works or it doesn't work, but it's yours. You know, and I, I use I use this this a lot with with uh, with the team I work with is all these kind of systems that we build, software pieces that we build are kind of some like our babies. <laughs> you know, it's like um, we design them, we we take care of them, we make them grow, and sometimes there is this feeling of ownership that you know that what you're building is yours, and it, it's you know as I said, there's a lot of self-realization when you are coding and when you are programming for sure. And um, what was your what was your first job in uh, software engineering? Yeah, my first job was as an IBM Lotus uh, Domino developer um, um, in two thousand and 
three. So I, I was a you know fresher uh, from the university. So I uh, graduate uh, from from the university. Uh, I I think I even, and this is something that usually happens over here is that I even graduate after I got a job. So um, I got a job and then one year later I, I, I graduated. Um, and yeah, it was an IBM Lotus uh, Domino developer um, yeah, the first couple of years. It's a technology that's no longer, well, I'm sure it exists. I, I, I actually, I, I didn't check. Um, back then it was very popular. And the, the creator of Lotus Notes, it's Ray Osi who to me is one of the greatest software minds of all time. And only because that person invented that, I was happy working with Lotus, IVN Lotus. And, and the technology itself was interesting. Well, if, if you think about it now, it's a NoSQL database. Back then it was like, well, everything was Oracle and everything was like that. And back then Lotus was like, okay, I'm a documents database. And I was like, okay, you were the MongoDB and the DocDB of, early 2000s you know it's interesting it, it 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 allowed me to learn cool stuff um i learned to be honest i learned ajax and web development with ajax with lotus domino because the domino servers that uh, you could have um a json representation of a view on, on um and that was uh sent by the server and I used that to start playing with uh, JavaScript Ajax and prototype um, back in 2006. Uh, so that was actually kind of was my escape valve uh, for, you know, for Lotus Domino and because the technology itself, as I said, it's not very interesting or compelling, but that part of it where you could build web applications and use Domino as a backend with JSON, that was pretty interesting. And um, pardon me. And um, uh, it's interesting to talk to people about their careers. And so a lot of people, their way into their first jobs is through, you know, startups and stuff like that. And some other people, the sort of other side of the sort of coin there is is big companies. And I gather you've been with with big companies for for much of your career. Yeah, very much. And I think is just circumstantial because of the local market. In I, I wouldn't say Spain. Spain in general is fine. It is true that it's a market which is dominated by the big corps and especially the big consultancy corps, you know, the Accentures, the DXEs, the, you know, Deloitte's and, and other local players. But, you know, it has been always dominated by um, large corporations and, and the opportunities that you get back then, not now, now is very different. There's a lot of small startups and product product uh, companies back, but back in 2000s, um, basically that was the only choice. Um, so, and especially where I lived, again, Asturias, uh, the opportunities were very reduced. Uh, you could only work for Capgemini, DXC, back to, it was CSC, HP, and that's it. For smaller companies, yes, but they were struggling. Now the situation is totally different. There's a lot of cool startups that are doing cool things. They are going well with organic growth and everything. But back then, the market was dominated by the big corps. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That actually is a good good uh, segue into the next question, which is something that comes up relatively frequently on the on the podcast, which is um, if you were starting out now. Uh, let's say you were 18 years old and you and you were you know just out of school 
and you were intending to have a career just like the one that you've had, would you formally study computer science at university or would you choose a different path? No, no, I would go to university and, and I, I got this, this is very, very clear. So um, university gives you something that um, um, some other um, ways of learning can give you, which is fundamentals. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for uh, um, programming, you know, boot camps and, and, and things like that. I love them. They, they are very good. I think, and this is something that I, I, I talk about a lot in my work, is um, the uh, boot camps help you hack the learning curve. So you can, you can learn how to build an application very quickly, which is very, very helpful for entry-level people who want to see something working in two weeks. You know, it's like, no, no, it, there a lot of people cannot spend mentally or even financially spend five years learning something. And at the very end of the career, they build an application, right? Um, many people leave, burn out, and, you know, in the way they want to see something and say, why I'm, why I'm learning uh, calculus, why I'm learning um, math and algebra, why, why I'm learning all that. I, I want to build an effing application, right? Um, that's fine. Um, so for those kind of people, um, boot camps is a very good solution. You can learn something. You can have uh, like quick satisfaction because in two weeks or even one month, six months, you get a good learning path and you are kind of hacking the learning curve. But the important thing is that you are not done. Now you need to learn all the fundamentals. So at the end of the day, the path you take through the university and the path you take through boot camps is the same. The, 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 the goal, the point where you want to reach is the same, which is full understanding of the technology, full understanding of the fundamentals, building applications and solving uh, real problems. Which way, which way do you want to take? Either the long way with the university and at very end of the university, learn how to build application or hack the learning curve you know, it's a shortcut, then you get the satisfaction, but don't forget, you need to learn the fundamentals too. Again, different curves, different paths for different people. Personally, I would choose the university way. Uh, well, it's my mentality and well, uh, I think it, it fits well with my way of thinking. And um, just, just to sort of go into a little bit of detail there for anyone listening who might be sort of facing this choice wherever they are in their career, they maybe they've got another career, another choosing maybe to become a software developer or something like that. What do you mean by the, the fundamentals? Oh, the fundamentals of uh, computer sciences. Um, this is, you know, how computers from physical, you know, how computers work inside, what is the von Neumann uh, architecture uh, to binary programming and logic, um, you know, all these kind of things uh, from how uh, programming languages work, um, how databases work, all these kind of things, you know, all those, all those fundamentals that you don't need that if you are trying to build uh, an application with React or Turbolinx, you know, uh, you don't need that. But in the long term, you kind of need it. It's like, okay, you, you, uh, as you start solving um, um, uh, larger and larger challenges and problems, you realize that you need that kind of fundamentals to be able to think, you know, with open with an open mind and actually be able to resolve uh, larger problems. So the fundamentals are 
fundamental. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, no, that's really interesting. And when it comes to, I mean, I mentioned, you know, the difference between, you know, big companies and startups and things like that. And is it typical for the big companies to, when it comes to sort of entry-level positions, to require someone to have a computer science degree? I mean, I mean, in, in 2021 nowadays. No, no, um, 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 the gatekeeping days are over. The, those gatekeeping days are over. Um, so my position is the following. I, I'm, I, I hire people to my team. So, well, I'm an architect who happens to be a manager as well, you know, and, you know, um, and uh, basically if I find somebody from the university who lacks real hands-on experience and they know they, they've got a strong base in, the, again, the fundamentals and the foundations, but they, but they lack, um, real hands-on experience on building applications, I'll, I would give them a training course or I would give them, give them like six months period for them to catch up, right? On the other hand, if I find somebody from the market, well, from the market is a very horrible name. I, I hate to, to say that, you know, but you know what I mean, right? I know what you mean. Uh, I do that sometimes too. <laughs> I hate it. Sometimes I'm this, this kind of words, I try to eliminate them from my vocabulary sometimes, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, so yeah. if I find somebody uh, um, who, again, coming from a coding bootcamp and without, uh, uh, you know, a, a college university title, I don't, I don't care. I hire them. And in turn, I consider myself, whether it makes sense or not, pay them the university. It's like if I realize this is a potential good candidate or good people, that is uh, productive and they've got future and a glittering, promising career, maybe I consider to say, yeah, maybe we need to give these people the fundamentals. So why not we, um, you know, the company uh, funds their, um, their training. So that, that's, that's my approach to hiring. Again, two different paths for, two diff for very different people. It's driven by context, financial situation, Life, life background. So, uh, and again, I'm not a gatekeeper. The gatekeeping days are over. I consider that gatekeeping is very dangerous for our industry. Uh, our industry needs more, I don't know, uh, writers. They need more better communicators, actors, you know, people from science. You know, we need to nurture our industry with different point of views because if everything we've got is engineers from the university, then it's going to be very, you know, self, um, you know, enthusiastic between ourselves. And, and I don't think it's doing any good to the industry. We need more people um, with an you know, it's external eyes that can help say, hey guys, you engineers with a title and, you know, engineer title, you guys, you are not doing this right. I mean, this industry needs some push with some other things that we engineers can see because it's not our background. And, and we need those kind of people in the industry. That's really fascinating, actually. Um, the, one of the big questions of the day um, right now in sort of late 2021, when it comes to gatekeeping and finding new people and, you know, sort of widening the prospects and, and bringing diversity on the teams. Um, what, what do you think about remote work? Right, remote work um, um, for, I mean, uh, I've got um, mixed feelings. Um, so as a worker, 
Yeah, I think kind of. I'm of I I'm one of those people who want to see other people. I'm a <laughs> I'm a social animal. I need to be with people. Uh, so could I accept a job which is 100% remote? Oh my god. Um, yeah, uh, it, it depends on the conditions. I, I would ask 100 questions about when can I see my team? When can I reconvene with them? I mean, are there any events where a team can go together? Is there any office I can go? You know, so I need to see people. Um, but on the other hand, I'm very, very comfortable working remotely. So, so I'm kind of one of those people who like and hybrid mode, right? For my hiring self, totally. I don't. I don't care where the people is as long as they do their job. I mean, I'm. Um, so the 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 pandemics was good to spot uh, micromanagers. So all those people who got nervous during the pandemics because no 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 I don't I want my people no, um in, in the office and you know I need to chat with my people uh, every day because I know I need to know where what they are doing. Well, that was a very good micromanager, you know, trap. <laughs> so all of them, you know, uh, appear from and, and show uh, from from the caves. And I'm, of course, I'm not one of those. And as long as uh, as the uh, as the team is doing a good job, um, even if it is, you know, a, a schedule where they say, "Hey, Pablo, I work four hours in the morning and five hours in the night," uh, that or no, that's fine. Um, I, we've got situations like that in 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 my team now, uh, where even people say, "Well, Pablo, I need to go." And uh, my family is from Canary Islands, so would you mind if I go and I redo my life in with my family in Canary Islands? And I said, "Go now." Yeah, it's that's thank, thanks for sharing that. It's really interesting. This is a subject I think we could probably talk about for a very long time. Um, yeah, particularly yeah. when you bring up, you know, the idea of someone whose whose job was kind of contingent on the sort of artificial environment that people were were working in. That was maybe a legacy of past requirements, uh, but wasn't really necessary anymore. Um, and you know, it's it's even baked into this sort of like these kind of conventions can become baked into language in the ways that for people, for example, even I would say like sort of with, with some prejudice, even now people will say it's time to get back to work. And what yes. they mean is what they mean is back to the office. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, but, but it is conflated in people's minds. Right. And you see it in the discourse, particularly in the United States, there's been this whole thing about sweatpants. I don't know if you've noticed that articles are always like, yes, it's yes. time to get out. And what, it, what is with this obsession with sweatpants? I mean, you know, it, it, but, but I mean, when you, you can ask it sort of in a funny way, but when you try, try to take it actually seriously, like what are these people concerned about? And it's like, without the kind of uniform and the ornamentation, uh, they kind of don't see work really happening. And it's, it's, it's just interesting for people. With, I have a very sort of straightforward mindset when it comes to stuff like that. Like, is it work or isn't it? Um, uh, and I don't need a water cooler you know, to, to, prove, totally. to prove I'm working or I don't, and I definitely don't need a commute, exactly, commute to exactly. prove that I'm working. Um, Show me the know. outcomes. Show me what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, but, deliver, but, deliver, but, meet the milestones and all, you know, all that kind of things, but you know. Totally. Yeah, exactly. But as you said at, at the beginning, you know, like, but that's your hiring self has these, knows all these things, but you also have to know that people have certain personalities and that's, that's an important thing to take into account. And, you know, some people need to be around other people to kind of 
just every once in a while or even every day to, you know, to get, to get their juices flowing. Other people, you fly them out like a kite and tie a rock to the bottom and come back a yeah. while later and reel them back in. And they're like, here's the best, you know, output you've ever seen. Um, exactly. And it, you exactly. just need to take in, that into account. Actually, that one, just, just on one last question on this kind of broad, broad, broad area though. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the pandemic and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, it's been almost two years now, but how, how that's, uh, that affected you where, where you live. Well, um, at the beginning, you know, that Spain was hit hard. Um, well, but, you know, like any other country. Um, and I'm lucky, again, because the region where I live is not very crowded. As I said, it's kind of rural. I mean, it's not 100% rural. It's a lot of rural space, but um, uh, it, it has been always probably at the tip of the spear in terms of good situations. You know, it's like Asturias has been always good at the lowest levels of, um, you know, of um, the virus spread in, in, in Europe. I'm not even talking about Spain, but I'm even talking about Europe. And now, well, so, um, yeah, it hit hard, uh, well, to my family as well. We've got, um, well, my, my uh, uh, grandparents uh, passed because of the pandemic, but they were 97 and 98 years old. So, well, of course, they, they couldn't do it. Um, but uh, apart from that, um, yeah, well, now uh, the situation is, is probably is the best in Europe, in Spain. I mean, if you look at the news and you if you read what's going on north of Europe is like, oh my God, what's, what's this? this? Are we back again to 2020? Well, what, what, what is this? Spain is, I think, we are reaching a level of 95% of vaccinations. Oh, wow. that's, that's impressive. And well, um, I, I think, uh, well, historically um, we've been, I, I guess, there's some historical reasons why Spain always has been uh, responding well to these uh, kind of situations. Uh, demand social cohesion, and uh, Spain is a very social cohesive country, and we are demonstrating that with these vaccination rates, uh, which is putting our country in in the lowest level of risk in Europe. So now the situation is, is is quite good, of course. Now you can't think in terms for in terms of countries right now because what, I mean, Spain is good, but what happens if Portugal is not good, or France? You know, it's like they are there. It's four hundred kilometers away from Spain. It's like now you you can't think in terms of frontiers. It's like well, what happens in Africa? I mean, I don't care if Spain is ninety five percent vaccinated. If Africa, you know, and, and Morocco is again is 14 kilometers away from Spain, like well, we shouldn't start. I mean, I, I would stop looking at these numbers from a country perspective. It's, it's an species perspective. It's like, what happens if you know um, there's a free movement of people around the world? Um, what happens when we open, you know, our frontiers and you know, and people from all over the world uh, come to our country, which they should, and you know, it's like. Where, where's your number, Spain? I mean, now that, that's why um, I think when I look at those numbers, it's like, so what? I mean, if Spain is 95% vaccinated and then uh, South Africa is only 20, it's like, 
<laughs> well, what's the point? Um, so it, it's it's very difficult. But um, again, I'm I'm kind of lucky that in this the current situation and circumstances, where it's still a little bit of country lockdowns, you can uh, travel much, although it's opening. We are good. We are good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's always um, so, so kind of, at the, as you, you nicely captured the fact that it's the issue with the pandemic is simultaneously hyper local and global. Um, totally. It's and, a very good way of putting it, Len. Yeah. 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 And, um, and there's just no escaping either, either of those, those, those features of it. Um, and I'm I'm glad to hear things are going going so well at least now uh, lo locally. Um, and you, yep. you, you when you said things were going well, it's like I was like, huh, you know, the I just realized I hadn't seen anything about Spain and COVID for a long time in the news, which is yes. the best news yeah, in a way you could you could get. Yes. Um, uh, and so just yeah. So um, and so now um, moving on to the next part of the interview, we're getting closer to talking about your actual book. Um, I wanted to talk <laughs> a little, just ask you a little bit about. Um, I'm just looking at your LinkedIn profile here, and um, if you could just talk a little bit about the work you do day to day and that you've been doing for a while now. For I think it's a DXC Assure. That's right. Yes. Um, so um, DXC Technology again is a large company. It's uh, it's a, a global uh, IT services company. I think now we are about 140,000 people around that. Uh, we are very well known because you know we are a services company, but um, we are a little bit less known um, because we are also a software company. And there's a software group within DXE. I mean, it's a group of probably 4,000 people that we build software, like a product, right? And we've been doing that for 25 years already. I mean, they have been doing it. I've been doing it only for about eight, nine now with this, with this team. I think it's eight years, uh, since seven, seven years with this team. But as a company, DXE has been building intellectual property for 25 years. Um, and we are specialized in insurance software. Um, so basically uh, large policy admin systems um, and reinsurance and broken, you know, um, quotation and tarification systems, all, all these kind of things uh, that we sell to our customers as, as, as products. So, um, about five years ago, we started a transition and we started to move from a product-based economy to a services-based economy. It means like, you know, we realized that there is nothing magic in our code that makes it irresistible to our customers to own it. They don't want to own our product because it's fantastic. No, no, they like our service. And we realized that our the future was deliver our service, sorry, our software as a service. So five years ago, we started a transition to um, uh, software as a service. Um, and uh, at the, and that's the name of the product, um, the, the solution is DXE Assure. Um, and at the core of DXE Assure, at the core of this SaaS solution, there is a component, uh, which is the, is, the, is the platform, is the digital platform. So you can start already, you know, uh, linking the dots as a platform, it's a SaaS, it's transition, building software platforms, a SaaS, you know, a guide to SaaS uh, transition with AWS, which is exactly 
what I try to capture in the book is my experience during the last five years uh, from a technology point of view, how to um, uh, start to decompose and migrate large monoliths into uh, more cohesive uh, and, and, and decoupled services, doing it using now what we call a platform approach um, at, the, at the core, um, doing it everything on AWS, because as I said, when you are doing software as a service, you own uh, all the costs, you know, the, 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 the cost of the assets in their totality, you own, you have the TCO. So we decided to go full with AWS. It's like, okay, well, we don't have a multi-cloud requirement. We don't have a portability requirement. We deliver our customers. All what they care about is that we give them the best insurance functionality through the internet. Uh, whether we deploy that on AWS or Google Cloud is like you and me when we watch Netflix. We don't care. Just give me a good service. Yeah, there's, there's a, there, thank you very much for that. That's, there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff to unpack there. And I like the, the way you're linking the, you know, the, the actual work that you're doing to, to the, to the book that, to the book and how it came out of that. And so just to start at the sort of very, like, we'll, we'll get, we'll get to the really interesting stuff, but just to start at the basic level. So, so you make this insurance, these insurance products and you provide these insurance services. Are those two insurance companies? Is that who your customers are? Yes, right. that's right. That, that's right. Our customers are, you know, large and small insurance carriers. So yeah, insurance, uh, insurance companies. Okay, that's, okay, that's right. Okay, so hopefully that will let me now build an analogy to 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 make sense of what you're to sort of like sort of fill fill out the sort of picture of what you're saying. But so, you know, in the past, um, uh, if you wanted to say run a run a run a web company, you had a room in the back with servers in it, um, and you you had you had to actually buy them. You had racks. You sort of had a, had like a person to sort of put them in the racks and make sure they all talk to each other and then talk to the internet um, appropriately. Um, and you had to, and you had to have this this physical thing that you were maintaining uh, in your business. But then eventually that that went away, um, and you could have this sort of up 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 in the cloud. Um, and uh, analogous, and and also in the olden days, um, uh, if you if you wanted if you let's say wanted a web browser, uh, you went to the store and you bought <laughs> you bought the product and you took it home and you sort of installed it on your computer, um, and uh, and then you then you had that product. Nowadays, of course, what you would do is you would download the 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 um, browser application from the web, and then and then it, but then it would but and not only would you have it, it would update all the time, as well. Um, and uh, I, I'm trying I'm trying to build up the idea that so if you're let's say you I'm I'm CEO of an insurance company, and um, you know I want some software to do something. In the past, what you would do is you would you would probably build it. You would maybe hire a team of programmers to build it yourself, which is the analogy to having the the servers in the back of the room. But eventually, what people sort of maybe transitioned towards was actually like having a company provide them with the software um, in in a sort of less sort of like in-house way. But then there's been this shift towards actually providing the realizing that you don't need to provide them with this product; you can provide them with a service. Am I kind of and I'm kind of getting it? Totally. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. And, yep. and and one of the really interesting things that happened too, with with particularly with things like AWS, is that um, instead of you know the having to have like you know I've got 10, ser 10 servers or whatever it is, right? I can actually only use exactly what's being used by my customers. Um, so it's only when people are kind of hitting my website that I'm using these servers in the cloud, and that's all that I'm paying for. And I gather one of the things that that's that's really driven that sort of kind of work that you've been doing is realizing that like you can build 
services that are only paid for when they're that, used that, when they're used that that is that is correct and so there is nothing in the principles of software as a service that says that you have to do it on the cloud or the, let me put it another way there is nothing on the principles of the software as a service and the service economy that says that you couldn't do it on-prem with uh, bare metal under your desk there is nothing it just happens that it doesn't make sense it doesn't scale right if you i mean if you try if you are providing a service to your customers uh, yes, it could make sense that you own everything. You own the, the hardware um, where your software is installed. But why why do you want to cosplay as a cloud provider these days? You don't want to cosplay as a cloud as a cloud provider. That's their job. Managing hardware and servers is their job now in 2021. So if I use those services as a utility, then for me, it's even easier to translate those costs into software as a service. What I mean is, if I am paying for what I consume in terms of um, infrastructure, for me, for my internal calculations, it's easier to uh, transform that into a price per use of the software as well, right? Uh, because there is there is a closer connection between what I pay and what I sell as a subscription, right? Of course, in the middle there is labor and there's a lot of things, but you know now the relationship is is kind of closer. And and of course, uh, when you are doing software as a service, you are again you are hitting the long tail. It's like well, anybody can subscribe to it. Um, I don't know. I don't have even a business model or prediction how many users are going to use it. So I want it to scale. I don't want to be going downstairs every day to, you know, rack up more servers because I just suddenly I got 2,000 more clients. No, if I got 2,000 more clients, um, AWS is going to scale it for me. So that's why, again, there's nothing in the principles of SaaS that says that you cannot do it on-prem with bare metal, but it doesn't make sense. It doesn't scale. Um, and, and that's where also I, I talk about this in the book a lot. And also I talk about build versus buy patterns, uh, which is something that I'm not sure if you if you wanted to cover that as well. Oh, oh, that was my that was my very next question. So if yeah, if you could if you could talk a little bit about this distinction, what's the difference between a, a build pattern versus a buy pattern, and and from whose perspective are we thinking? Who, who's, who's got the pattern? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, the pattern is everywhere um, when you are a builder and when you're a consumer. So, for example, and and Jeff Lawson, who is the CEO of Twilio, and he speaks, well, he, 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 wrote, he wrote a lot about this in his book, Ask Your Developer, which is a book that I, I absolutely love and is actually one of my um, inspirations to, to my own book. Um, he says, well, it's not actually build versus buy, it's build and buy. Uh, because there are some situations where you need to build and some situations where you need to buy and they are not mutually exclusive. I mean, it depends that for some components, you need to buy the components, but for others, you build it. So my, and, and again, I talk about this a lot in the book. And so when do you build? Well, you build when you've got something that is core to your business and when you need full control, when it is so critical to make uh, your company uh, different from the uh, from the competition that you need to build it. Um, so, and typically in a post-pandemic world, this is typically user experience and um, or uh, customer experience. So everything that is exposed to my customers 
where I offer them, um, you know, ways of acquiring my services. Um, in this case, an insurance company is buying, you know, a, a, a insurance policy is I want full control of that. I want to build it. So my customers who are insurers, I would recommend them go and build your, um, your customer facing um, uh, portals. Of course, here uh, there are nuances that again I, I'll talk about them in the book. I don't want to leave my customers alone. You know, it's like, oh, go and build it. No, it's go and build it, but I'm gonna offer you components. I'm gonna offer you a framework. I'm gonna gonna offer you a design system. I'm gonna offer you, you know, a small component so you can build your product. Even even under there are even customers who say, yeah, thank you, yeah. Uh, DXE, you are giving me all these tools, but I don't have the manpower. It's like, okay, then we can partner and we can do it together. When do you buy? Well, you buy when there is something that is not important. It's just cost of doing business. For example, in my company, DXE, internally we've got SAP to manage the financials and Workday to manage uh, HR. Do you imagine DXE buying our own HR system for 140,000 people? No, like, okay, buy it. It's core? No, because we are not an HR company. We are an IT services company, so we buy it. Um, so, uh, um, so today, those are the kind of things that you buy when um, it, it's not core to your business. It's not gonna make you different. I mean, do you think that DXE is different from our competitors because we, we've got Workday? No, you know? is this cost of doing business. So that's when you buy. Um, and, and this is very interesting because, um, again, I'll talk about this in the book a lot, is um, some people and some companies, they for them, it's so important that they recognize what is core to them. And that's the key question is like, when do I build, when do I buy? Well, they, 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 you know, the answer is very easy. If it is core to you, Build it. If it is not core and it's just cost of doing business, it's not giving you any uh, competitive advantage, then buy it. They, they, they don't know how to answer that question. It's like, well, I don't know if this is core to me. You know, uh, well, yes, I can buy Workday, of course. But you know, Workday out of the box or ServiceNow out of the box is not giving me what I need for my unique HR process. It's like, your HR process is not unique. <laughs> it's just cost of doing business. It's just an HR process. Adapt. You must adapt your process to the tool, not the other way around. So you can focus on your core business. And your core business, in the cases of DXE, is selling IT services in an insurance company, is selling uh, more policies in a car manufacturer, is just selling more cars. Yeah, that, it's so fascinating. Actually, one of the things I really liked about the explanation you gave there, which was which was very good, was you captured the fact, I mean, particularly at the end there when you were talking about how, like, how do I know what's core, though? It's actually not necessarily straightforward, and especially before you've actually gone down the path of the technological path that you're going to have to go down, right? The decisions that you're going to make along the way are sort of determined by the decisions, but what you make is core, but you kind of might find out at the end that what's core is is not what, exactly. is not what you thought. Um, exactly. And uh, and that that sort of actually gives us the opportunity to bring up something a little bit little bit fun um, because uh, your book your book is you know building software platforms a guide to SaaS transition with AWS and it's for companies who might want to build internal internal software platforms with the architectural style that you set out to make this uh, work and and you talk a lot about you know how this is you know empowering learning how to empower the developers within your company to sort of create the kind of tools that your company needs 
but not just for the specific things. It's like there's a higher level principle that this book is one kind of instance of. Um, and I think that you start the book by by showing that that's true by talking about a restaurant. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk and you make you have a good joke, you know, so you thought this was a software book, but now we're le learning about gastronomy. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could actually talk a little bit about that, 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 that example uh, that you gave at the beginning. Right. The yes. It, it's a very funny example. And, and, and um, I don't even remember how it came, but, you know, it, it has been always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, so there is a restaurant in Spain called uh, El Bulli, uh, well, which is actually probably the best restaurant of all time. And um, the main chef of El Bulli is Ferran Adria. And Ferran was known because in the, in the late 90s, uh, when El Bulli was already enjoying a leading position, you know, uh, two Michelin stars, you know, amongst the best places in the world, you know, he was like, so what, you know, it's like, and, and, and he went conference to conference and he, he watched how other chefs, uh, you know, they, they expressed what they, they, they were doing, presenting what they were doing, but uh, they were keeping the secrets and the recipes to them. They were not sharing, sharing that to them. Uh, to the world. So Adria, that, that triggered uh, Adria's, you know, uh, creativity and said, it's over. I'm going to, I'm going to open source my recipes and my techniques. And that's what he did. So of course he didn't use the word open source. Now we know that in, in, you know, uh, back in 20, you know, 2021, um, even, even probably if you ask him, he doesn't know what the open source word means. Well, maybe he does. He's a very smart guy. Um, but you know, what he did was I'm going to open source my recipes because he thought that the best way of protecting an idea was actually making it public. So by doing that, the, this was a smart move because he, what happened after that was that, um, uh, El Bulli and all the competitors were started, started to compete in equal conditions of practices of techniques. It's like, okay, everybody knew what Adria and El Bulli were doing and the techniques and the products, everything, you know. So uh, all the restaurants around the world started to use molecular gastronomy and, and they started to acquire all the, all the tools and they started to compete in equal conditions. So by doing that, actually what happened was that maybe without knowing Adria and El Bulli, they created a standard, an industry standard. And they created the standard just by making it public. It's like everybody using it, it's a standard. So that's how a standard um, appear. You know, it's like if everybody use it, um, that's a standard. And, and they created a, a standard by um, open sourcing recipes and tools and techniques. So again, uh, all the restaurants started to compete in equal conditions, but the buoy, what happened was that uh, differentiated from the rest by how they cook the, the, the dishes they made. It's like, you know, uh, the dishes they made with equal conditions, with equal practices, with equal raw materials, they were still the best because they, they differentiated uh, themselves in service, in operations, in, in customer experience. So you could get exactly the same dish in El Bulli or in your local restaurant because the techniques were exactly the same and the raw materials were exactly the same. But why why they weren't why El Bui, why your local restaurant couldn't do what what El Bui was doing because El Bui was 
differentiating in service, customer experience, and operations. And that is a lesson to the to the industry, to the I mean to the tech industry, in that um, when you are enjoying a leading position as a product, uh, and and you know, and, and you've got a, a very competitive landscape, it could be a very good move to open source um, your product to stop competing on the product and start competing on the service. And you know who's the master of doing that is, uh, is AWS. AWS, they are the, the masters of, in, of industrialization. Um, you know, of course, there are always some um, challenges and situations like what happened with Elastic as well. But you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, they are masters of industrialization. And you know, the, the net of it is um companies that are moving today in the product economy if they want to preserve their uh, competitive advantage and still lead in the coming years they need to move to a services economy because that's where at the end the evolution and the industrialization goes yeah it's really it's really fascinating um uh, the, the the lesson to be drawn from that and like i mean you know the, the sort of the sort of courage and the uh I mean, you know, the balls of of what of what they did uh, is is really incredible. But you know, it 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 makes me think. You know, when we were talking before about you know how do I know what's core or what I want to be core to my business? Well, do an exercise, right? If you've got any proprietary technology or or secrets, imagine everyone knew them and imagine everyone had them, right? Then what what would you be doing to to compete? And this is a really good exercise for thinking about how that exactly. I learned from, that I learned from your book about about how to you know, really come to grips with what it is you are doing and what you want to be doing and what you can do and where you can compete. Exactly. And in the book, I use a technique which is called worldly maps um, that, again, the creator, I, I, you know, I quote Simon Worley, who is the creator of the technique a lot in the book because he's got brilliant quotes and and he, I mean, he he also envisioned uh, where the tech industry uh, was going in 2008. In 2008, he was already talking about serverless. I mean, not with the with the word serverless. He he called that something like um, runtime utilities or something like that. But he he envisioned already. Even uh, he was the CEO of a company um, which uh, they did something like AWS Lambda is doing today. They did JavaScript runtime as a service again in a small company, and he envisioned where um, the industry were going. Um, and then he, he developed this technique, which is called uh, worldly maps, which is giving you movement and position. You, you, uh, you place the different elements of your business or your, even your architecture in a map, and you can easily see the dynamics of what is custom built, where things are evolving, where the competition is happening, where do I get the market push, where my next move should be here or here. Should I buy or, be, or build it? Well, if it is core, you, you build it. If it is not core, you externalize because, well, it's a very industrialized utility. So Worldly Maps is an excellent tool to build to uh, build and develop strategies. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. That was on on my list uh, to talk to you about. I was I was also introduced to, to this idea, the idea of worldly maps from from your book. Um, and uh, let me see if I can I can sort of grasp it sort of quickly for people. But imagine imagine you've got an, an x axis and a y axis, and the x axis starts on the left with um, a technology that's completely unique to you. And then on the as you further go right, the more universal and sort of as it were commodified it becomes. 
Um, and then the vertical axis, the y-axis is um, starting at the bottom is uh, totally not user-facing, um, completely internal to your, your system. And then at the top is, is exactly, what, exactly what the user sees. And um, I think a lot of people listening to this would come from this sort of like nerdy kind of business background, like, like I do to some extent, you know, would be immediately thinking of a quadrant, but that would be the wrong way to think of it. It's not, it's not, you, there's, a, there's a kind of like, you can imagine there's the sort of drawing a line through this grid that where the, the movement is through time. Right. And so, and so you can actually sort of, is that, is, is that kind of right? Is that one way you could use a worldly map to plot my movement through this? Exactly. This table? Exactly. Okay. And, and, and that is what, and, and Simon Ward is a lot of material. Simon is very kind because he, I mean, all his work is uh, creative commons. Uh, and it's a lot of videos of uh, Simon Worley talking about this in, in YouTube. And he, he, he continuously talk about what is the difference between a graph and a map. So a graph is typically an architectural diagram, you, website, users, servers, you know, when you put that on, um, on, on a white paper and you got a graph. The difference between a graph and a map is that the map gives you pos position and movement. It, it tells you where you are uh, comparing yourself to the climate, you know, where to the, um, to the competition, to, the, uh, to your context. Um, this, this term that he uses, uh, it gives you situational awareness uh, with regards to your elements. Uh, again, it's very important because typically what we use in business to uh, draw our strategies are SWOT analysis, graphs, roadmaps, that is giving you kind of um, position, if you like, right? But it doesn't give you movement. You don't know what, you know, you can, it's very difficult to, uh, to understand um, where the competition is happening, uh, what elements are more industrialized than the others. Um, I should never compete, uh, you know, with, uh, things that are already industrialized uh, compete with a product. I mean, I, I should never build a product where a utility already exists because, you know, the utility is going to win the market. But if, um, if there isn't a product for something, maybe I need to custom build it. You know, all these kind of things uh, is what Worldly Maps gives you and allows you to identify what are the uh, market pressures and see, okay, uh, my next move would be um, industrializing my, my uh, life cycle automation or industrializing the way I build front ends, for example. I should partner with someone who is building it for me so I can focus on something else. You know, if the market of um, insurance application is already uh, commoditized and there are utilities, I should go for that and focus myself on other stuff. That's movement. And it lets you account for timing. Very, very, very much. Yeah, which is something which is something you talk about really well about um, AWS in particular. That you know, it's not it's not as it were only sort of building the products that people need, but it's like building the products that people need and releasing them at the right time uh, is 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 crucial. Yeah, AWS is very, very good at meeting their customers where they are. I mean, they don't push you to use technology that you don't want to use. Um, 
And this is a name that I learned. This is a German name, Taiga. Is well, probably you. So it's a word that I think you English native speakers use as well. But that's new to me. So it, it means the literally. I think it means the the ghost of time, uh, Zeitgeist. I think, uh, which is well. Uh, understanding and be empathic with, you know, have some empathy with uh, with the time you're living in, right? And understanding what are your, the context of the society and the, in this case, your users, your customers, understanding what are their problems and giving them a solution exactly where they are, exactly the solutions they need. That solution may not be exactly where you wanna be in five years, but take them by the hand show them the way and gradually with them walk the journey while you show them how to evolve the journey you want to do. And, and AWS is very good at that because when they started AWS Lambda in 2014, it was a very, well, that's a different case because actually the problem with that was that it was very aggressive, nobody used it and they need to revert it uh, to make it more, less aggressive. <laughs> but, you know, for example, if EFS, EFS, AWS EFS is a very good example because they started, or step functions, another good example. They started very simple with a very, very basic, pretty basic state machine functionalities. Uh, giving customers uh, low code um, ability to write state, state machines. Gradually, um, they started to uh, add more and more and more uh, functionality. So they master MVPs. Uh, they give you an MVP uh, and you know when you use that MVP that in two years time, they're gonna invest in two years time, they're gonna give you another 1000 functionalities out of the box and it will cost you nothing. I think uh, since we've been talking for about an hour now, we should probably uh, move on to oh, um, yeah. the last part of your interview where we talk about, right. uh, sorry for the abrupt transition, but sometimes it happens with timing, um, no, no, uh, no, unfortunately. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's been a great conversation. We could talk about this forever, but I mean, that's one of the reasons uh, people should go out and buy the book. Um, uh, exactly. And, uh, that, so speaking about the book, that we say this for the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience uh, as writing and as an author. And I was just wondering, uh, what was the mo do you remember the moment or the period of time when you realized you kind of had a book in you? About, yep. about this kind of thing and, and totally. when you made the decision? Okay. Totally. You know, the hardest part of building software platforms is adoption uh, because it's a, a, a new, a new architect, architectural style. It's, uh, you know, a new way of building tools for empowering developers and adoption at the beginning for us, uh, you know, it, it was kind of hard. My customers in this case as a platform architect and, and product manager are developers. You know, the 1,000 plus developers are my, my customers and adoption was hard, you know, and, and even we've got, I'm very happy with DXE because full support and sponsorship, they really understood that was the way to go. But, you know, in any case, adoption is hard. Um, and I, I remember I started to write notes. Um, in preparation for meetings, meetings with other directors, meeting with customers, meeting with peers to explain them uh, what is a platform, uh, what are the benefits for them, uh, what is the platform all about, technically, technically from a, um, a point of view, what is a platform, why uh, going serverless and embracing the cloud is important. And I started to write notes to support some presentations, decks, and after a few months, even a couple of years, I realized, oh my God, how many notes do I have? And it's like, I have a book. <laughs> so look at this, uh, you know, 
uh, if I write story about this, and I remember at the time I was learning also about worldly maps and say, oh my God, if I, if I glue up all these nodes with some worldly maps concepts and, and all the things I'm learning about AWS, I think I've got a compelling book. So that, that's what I did. I started to glue up all these nodes uh, with some wording and trying to make a smooth story and uh, a guide to uh, SaaS transition. And this is how the book uh, was born. And uh, how did you, uh, did you have a schedule for writing? Were you like, I'm going to get up five in the morning and get in two hours before I go to work? Or did you work on the weekends? No, or I, like <laughs> you know, and I, this is the first time I say this, but I wrote my book walking. And there's a lot of meaning of what I'm saying. Um, so Saturday morning, Sunday morning, even weekdays in the morning, I, you know, I go out and do some one hour, one hour and a half walking. I don't know what happens to your brain, but I remember that like 1,000 ideas came to my mind and I, and I, and I made another 1,000 voice notes about this and this and this and this. And then, you know, and I came and say, oh yeah, I'm gonna write this down. And I would say that the most compelling ideas, if there are compelling ideas, I mean, the reader should tell me that, um, came to me while walking. Uh, it's incredible. And, and you know, I'm a very avid uh, Twitter user. And I heard that from a couple of Twitter users as well. Like, for example, um, Sarah Drasner, uh, who is now engineering director for, uh, for Angular in, in Google, and Sasha Rosenbaum, who is um, um, well, a leading position in DevOps in Red Hat. They say this a lot, that they like to work, they like walking, because there's a lot of ideas, you know, uh, come uh, and something happens to your brain uh, in those moments. And it happened to me. That's really fascinating. I think you're the first person to, to talk about writing their book while, while walking that we've had on the <laughs> podcast. Um, there, there, is, there is an ancient kind of um, Herod back, uh, heritage for that. Um, the, uh, there was, I think it might've been Plato's Academy where they were called the peripatetics because they, uh -huh. they would walk around while lecturing. Um, ah. uh, rather than rather than standing, you know, someone standing somewhere and then speaking to people sitting before them, you would go on a walk. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people think, oh, that's just a sort of way of keeping the students occupied or something. But it's also for the person speaking, because it kind of you know gets the gets the juices flowing. Um, and uh, I guess maybe I, that's right. I gather too that the um, the the you know sort of the Romans back in you know the Roman days uh, were notorious notorious for walking around uh, at, a at a time at, at times and places when people didn't just go for walks and the, the, the people thought they were crazy right because they crazy for walks. yeah but I've yeah, always yeah. I've always thought you know what I bet I bet a big part of that and I'm I'm not talking about sort of peasants I'm talking about the generals and the aristocrats <laughs> and stuff yes they, they would have ambulatoriums like area like they would build things for you to walk around in I uh, see. and I always used to think it was it was partly you know for that to get thoughts and conversation going. those um, things fascinated me I mean these are fascinating things how the human brain works and they, this is fascinating yeah yeah um and and I, by the way again I totally sympathize I mean I I sort of like have to keep myself from talking to myself 
uh, with all the <laughs> ideas that come when I'm walking around. Yep. And pro probably at least having something I could pretend I'm making voice notes or something would make me look less crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but um, and so and so yeah, and so you you, you wrote the book um uh, in a sort of very interesting way. Uh, and then eventually you decided to publish it, and um, uh, you did decide you decided to publish it. Um, it's it's in print on Amazon, but it's also available on LeanPub. And I was yep. wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose LeanPub as the platform. Well, I I was a user of Limpa before I, I wrote my book. So I, I, I purchased a couple of books um, here. Um, for example, well, I can say there's a very good book on cloud strategy by Gregor Hope, which is, I think, one of the most, uh, the best-selling book in, in Limpa. And, and I own that, uh, a copy of that. And, and also being an agilist, uh, the first time I heard about LeanPub, I the, the first thing that came to my mind was the lean word. It's like lean. Okay. And even without looking on Google what LeanPub was about, I, I got I got it. It's lean publication. It's LeanPub. <laughs> it's like, okay, this this seems to be some sort of you know, a, a way uh, where you are publishing an MVP of your book and then you iterate. It's like, oh yeah, that's it. So it literally clicked to me and say, right, if one day I write a book. I think I'm gonna use this, and and also because I think it's a, it's a very good platform, full of choices. You know, being on Limpub already is a honor for me. You know, it's like even you can publish it, it's fine. But um, you know, if you my book is amongst other brilliant books on the platform, and to me already that is a honor. Oh, thanks very much for those kind words. It's funny you say Limpub clicked with you right away because there are people for whom that happens, but we also occasionally get the occasional kind of uh, snarky Brit who's like, I thought it was a bar that. Only sold, <laughs> sold diet beer or something like well, that. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> a, a lean that's pub. Uh, but um, that, in another in another universe or another timeline, that's what we did. <laughs> but exactly. um, but and so and I mentioned so your book is uh, in, available in print on Amazon, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you did that. How did you get your book in print? Oh, it was very easy with Limbab. It, it was very very easy. You know, I'm I think I'm a I subscribe to the standard. Um, uh, or standard or even professional, I, I, I don't recall now. I think it's a standard. Uh, and with the standard, you can uh, have a, uh, a, a free uh, print ready copy of your book that you can uh, okay. go and upload to, to Amazon. It was very, very easy. So yeah, that oh. then... Okay, yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Yeah, no, we, we, we have a print ready PDF option where you sort of, you write your book, and if you write your book in one of our writing modes, you can click a button and then, you know, I mean, you do some settings, but you can basically click a button and get the file you need to use print on demand services like, you know, Amazon, KDP, exactly. and Lulu and things like that. And I mean, and so I'm glad to hear it was easy. <laughs> we hear that from some people, but since since we've, I mean, since I've been there for the whole development of it, it's kind of like, it always surprises me <laughs> that, that it works, <laughs> but it's only because of working closely and talking to people like you over the years that that it does work now. Um, but the last question I actually always say for, for a guest as a Lean Pup author is, um, if there was one magical feature we could build for you, or one terribly annoying thing about Lean Pub that we could fix for you, yeah. um, can you think of anything you would There's ask one. Me? Is okay. resources management is how is how pictures are managed in in the writing mode. Um, okay. It was a kind of a well, not a pain, but for example, um, I, I find it. Um, you know, I think my book has about fifty figures of pictures, and and it was hard to manage those fifty. I think I, I got a very flat view of them whenever I wanted to replace one picture with another. Uh, I found it a little bit difficult because I uh, uh, look like replacing. There is no way 
good way of replacing a picture with another one. You need to delete the previous one and upload it. Or at least the, the, maybe maybe that's me. <laughs> I didn't find a way. But if I didn't find a way, that also means that this, there is some uh, UX part of it which needs to be fine-tuned. Um, but for the rest, uh, I find it. I found it very usable. Oh, very straightforward. It's like, go write your book. There's a write tab there. You click on write and you start writing. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Actually, that's that's really helpful for, for us to know. Um, actually, I feel I feel guilty. I didn't I didn't actually look to see what writing mode you'd used um uh, before the interview, but I'm uh, looking, looking at it right now. Yeah, I used the, the browser, the browser of web writing mode, where yeah, we give you a write tab in the browser and you just write there. Um and um although it, it's in some ways like when it comes to just writing words, um it's super straightforward. You know, you can, you know, click a click a plus button and create a new chapter yes. and you type oh, a pound sign and you very easy. And the and the oh, yeah. Marqua language, is it Marqua the name, right? Is... Mark Marqua is how we pronounce Marquua, it. Marqua, right. Yeah, is yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah uh, very easy to follow, you know, very well documented as well. I found oh. a very comprehensive document on the internet. So yeah. Oh, that, that's that's good to hear. Yeah, it's our it's our version of markdown for books, uh, basically for any for anyone listening who sort of knows that what that means. <laughs> and uh, but but um when it comes to images, so we have a re we on the on the right tab in the browser, we have a manuscript section, which is where you do type your words out and stuff like that. And then we have a resources section where you upload um, images and then and then you can click a little link if you a little a little button or uh, and then that gives you the the Markua text that you need that you can just paste in to your manuscript. But uh, yes, the way that looks and the way that is managed is is in need of improvement. Um, yeah. And it's, it's actually interesting. I'd never particularly thought of the situation of needing to replace an image before and basically what you would have to do is you would have to make sure to uh copy the file name you would delete the image that's on there and then you would add a new one but then where the new image has been added would be at the bottom of the list basically exactly and and then and that would that would be confusing and kind of nerve-wracking you yeah. want to do a new preview right away to make sure it was working and stuff like that and that's after a few months, you know, I found my way to do it, but at the beginning it was a little bit confusing. But you know, yeah, I, I think that's my off the top of my head. That's what I have. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that. The, the other another sort of limitation of the resources tab there is that if you have, I mean, you've got about you said you've got about fifty images or so. That's kind of manageable. Some people yep. have books with hundreds <laughs> of images, and if you exactly. have hundreds of images, you would actually want something a little bit more more robust than what we have. Um, like a file manager or something, you know, whatever, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. We'll 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 definitely think about how how to how to do that better. Um, well, uh, Pablo, thank you very much for taking the time out of what I'm sure was a beautiful evening in in Spain, uh, up in the north there, uh, and to be on the podcast. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Thanks to you, Lynn. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.